whether or not someone has the ability to form a healthy and consistent habit around uh, saving uh, for the short-term things they want, like emergency funds, vacations, and whether they have the ability to be consistent with investing, those are critical paths to long-term financial security and success. Welcome to Behind the Brand, presented by NEO. We take an inside look at the leaders behind today's most influential brands. I'm your host, Jeff Adamson. As co-founder of NEO Financial and Skip the Dishes, I'm fascinated by what it takes to build great companies. On this podcast, we'll learn from leaders that are reimagining, transforming, and innovating in the financial and retail industries across Canada. Let's get going. Joining us on the show today is Leslie Ann Scorgi, founder and wealth coach at MeVest financial education company that leverages technology to assist Canadians in saving more, spending smarter, and preparing for their future. Leslie Ann's passion for personal finance ignited at age 10 when she invested a $100 birthday gift from her grandparents in a Canada savings bond. At 14, she was buying mutual funds, and by 17, she was on track to be a millionaire by 25. Today, Leslie Ann is a best-selling author, newspaper columnist, and a professional speaker who is determined to simplify the path to financial security and help others achieve their financial goals. Welcome to the show, Leslie Ann. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm personally really excited about this chat because I feel like personal finance is one of these things that people don't talk about enough. I don't know if it's just me, but the the Google algorithms, my newsfeed is just full of get rich by 25 and like do these three things. It seems like a very influencer focused and there's like YouTube ads where you've got a, a guy or a girl in a garage and they've got Ferraris and they're, yes. like, they're like, I don't, I don't believe in things. I believe in knowledge. It can be kind of overwhelming for people. So I'm really excited and I'm really grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say like, there are a lot of loud voices in the personal finance space. They happen to get a lot louder during the pandemic. I found <laughs> that my feed just, it was like, blowing up and i know which youtube videos you're talking about the ferrari the guy in the sunglasses i know exactly what you're talking about a really good place for us to maybe even talk is on the loud voices and i think of where today we get our information about money and those places are from social media they are from non-traditional sources because the interest is so much higher and that is a very good thing i think the fact that our generation wants to know more, they are listening to these these voices. Some of them, let's just be honest, are not very qualified and like you won't want to listen too hard to what they're saying. But like, I love the energy behind it. I think it's become so relevant. I think it's hyper relevant when we talk about the cost of living and these are good things. But it's like many, we channel it to be more qualified energy so that people aren't making some common mistakes. Because when I see these videos, to me, I feel like it's a scam. Like that's my default. It's like you're advertising on YouTube, you're showing off all your wealth. And I feel like most of the wealthy people who I've met, it's quiet money. They're not investing in things like expensive cars. And so like my default assumption is that, okay, well, this is a kind of clickbait. I click on it. I pay like a couple hundred bucks for, for something. But at the end of the day, I don't feel like those are the people who I should be taking my personal finance cues from. Is that an accurate assumption? Yeah, it is. So what we know is that the flash, the sizzle, and all the fun that you see online, uh, they they used to call this like 
keeping up with the Joneses, and now we call it clickbait. But what we know about the Joneses is that they're broke. When you actually peel back the payments and the layers of, and there's so many layers of payments, wealth is built through net worth. Net worth being a combination of assets you own offset by liabilities. And wealthy people have this equation like really nailed down. They know that the way you grow real wealth is you use liabilities to actually add to your assets. That's how wealthy people continue to grow their wealth. And I'm going to give you an example of what I find so hilarious. And like, I'm not going to name the name of like the person that I follow, but there's somebody that I follow and she drives a Bentley. I'm like, there's there's no chance that you actually own that Bentley. And there's no chance that the house that you're recording your videos on is owned by you. The people who actually own that house and that she's leasing the Bentley from, those are the folks that are actually making the real money. And another way to think about this is like, I so I made my first million when I was 28. And I just a year and a half ago, like my husband dragged me to the dealership to replace my 14-year-old car because I couldn't get another car seat in the back seat. And it, I was like kicking and screaming on my way to the dealership because I'm like, I don't need another car. And, you know, and I like, this is going to be fine. My kids are going to be fine. And and I finally like, I was like, fine, like I'll get the car. I did get a very nice car, but it was, you know, it's used by a couple of years and still had some warranty on it. Half the, mm-hmm. half the amount of money, you know, this drill, you know, there are things that wealthy people spend money on and they typically are not cars, but they typically are things like assets that grow, could be real estate, could be investment portfolios. And you know, this like businesses, you know, mm-hmm. profitable businesses are another avenue for the self-made millionaire crowd. Let's go back to the beginning. I'm, I'm going to have a lot of questions that are knuckle dragger questions that it's like, Jeff, like, do you not know this? Truthfully, like my understanding of personal finance is probably really different than many other people's. And I, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about those. But before we get into those, take us to the very beginning. I've read that when you received $100 from your grandparents, instead of going out and buying candy or a bike, you chose to invest it. Most 10-year-olds, even especially myself, I would not have been doing that. Why was 10-year-old Leslie Ann investing her money at 10 and not doing what everyone else does? I think part of it was because there was so much pressure in my own home. Like We didn't really have any money. And so getting $100 for my birthday from my grandparents was like unforeseen. Like It was more than I'd ever seen before. And it was actually my mom who, despite her not being very good with money, she told me this one thing at 10. She's like, there's savings bonds that are on sale at the bank right now. And if you put $100 in, in seven years, you get $135 back. And I that was the very first introduction I had to compound interest. And she further went on to say, I know you want that bike because I did. I like wanted a, I wanted a brand new bike. And isn't it funny how like when I was 10, you could buy a bike for $100? (laughs) (laughs) I digress for a second. But legit, that was what like, I think Mm -hmm. I was gonna get it from Walmart or something. And she's like, Leslie, and I don't know much about money, but I know that you're resourceful. And if you did buy this bond, probably like, I'll, I'll take you to finish your babysitting course. And you can probably start working and make another $100. And maybe you still get your bike, but it might be six or seven weeks down the road. Also, don't you find it crazy that like I was babysitting at 10 years old? I cannot imagine having a 10 year old 
babysit my own children. <laughs> I don't know if we should even say that on the podcast. I think that might be illegal <laughs> nowadays. I know. <laughs> I know. I like. I, I don't even think you're allowed to do this. Anyways, I was allowed. Like, I started babysitting, but I also started like a little babysitting club. And I hired my sister, and I hired the neighbor, and and it, it, my mom was right. Six weeks later, I had enough money to buy my bike, but I also bought that Canada Savings Bond at that time. And we were living in Edmonton at that time. And it was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. Again, growing up in a home where we didn't have much, like there were times in my young, young years, like where my family actually had to use the food bank. And so when money came into my hands, I was like quite moved by that early experience. And I took it very, like very seriously. Like I have to do something. I have to pr protect this money. And before I knew it, like I, every time my little businesses, like my flyer routes, my babysitting club, and I also got like, I somehow got my younger brother to start cutting grass and to give me a cut of it. I like took this money and I started to invest before I knew it. I was like fairly flush with cash and investments and started buying mutual funds when I was 14, started buying stocks when I was 18. That went mediocre. <laughs> and I think what I had that maybe a lot of like young people have to grow into, but I seem to have, I seem to have it like earlier is I was really curious about money. And I was a big reader, like my very first Jeffrey Archer book, which those are like the rags to riches tales. If you've never read Jeffrey Archer, like they're classically rags to riches tales. Like I read my first one when I was 10. And I was like, that's me. I am doing that. <laughs> I would like to start a business, start my own business and like get into the business world because that's something that I can control. So when my whole family was like feeling out of control, there was no money. It was really, really high tension situation. Money was the method for me to wrap my arms around having some sense of control for the way my future was going to go. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it, it, it does. And it's, you know, it's not too dissimilar. Like when I was growing up in, in Saskatchewan, you know, we didn't have a ton of money. My parents were incredibly frugal. I remember after like a wrestling tournament, you know, if I won, the kind of present my parents would give me for winning was a five cent candy. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, other kids were getting like a new bike or, you know, big gifts, expensive things. And so to me, it was like that upbringing of, of frugality. And no, I wasn't as, as savage as you are in terms of like buying mutual funds and, and bonds when I was 10. But I do feel like your upbringing has such a huge impact on how you view money. And I'm curious to hear, Leslie, and like now you're, you're a mother now, you've got two kids at home. I imagine that your life situation is a lot different than your parents were. Mm -hmm. And so then when you think about raising your own kids, how do you even think about the environment they're growing up in relative to the one that you did? Because I feel like your environment has such a big impact on how you viewed money. What a loaded question. I love it. <laughs> well, no, I truly don't know the, I don't know the answer though. Yeah. Oh, and like to further add another layer to this, I also married a financial planner who is it, who is in finance now. So like, yeah, it's a heavy finance house. It's like a heavy finance house. I mean, my, my kids are so young, one and three. I don't have that roadmap exactly pinned down for like what you know, what their learning path is going to look like, you know, you'll get to know me, Jeff, and you'll get to know that like, I am like, about research data, I like black and white, I don't like gray yeah. areas. And I can tell you that research shows that 
three-year-olds start to pick up the concept of the value of a dollar at three. Hmm. Like, wowzers. And I am going to like further that with the fact that just last week, my son asked me where money came from. And I, I was like, <laughs> just like are we talking about the cash register? The, like the plastic cash register that your your grandmother gave you? <laughs> like, yeah, you have all that, all the per- personal finance knowledge and you're like stumped by the most simple question. Where does the money come from? It's so funny though. Like I, I find whatever he's leaning into and eventually my daughter will probably ask similar questions. Like I want to go with the flow. So I'll tell you a couple of things that I do with them now is, I do take my three-year-old to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we stopped doing like online orders. Um, I'd, I'd say like six months ago and we started like going back to the grocery store and I talked to him about what's happening in the store and like why we would choose one thing over another. And I let him hold my wallet, uh, which is super dangerous right because like they take everything out Uh, but I let him like hold the I let him hold money and hold the cards and and ask questions and I think that's a good path forward for right now and Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that my husband and I are super aligned on uh, because we had to carry the burden of of going to school like going to post-secondary and paying for all that I'd say one thing I want for my kids is I want to be able to not have them have that burden while they're focused on their studies. Because I remember in university, I had three jobs. I was uh, I was paying for a school. I was serving drinks at the bar at night. I was working at the library in the day. And then on the weekends, I worked at the Royal Bank as like a teller. And I patched together, like literally by the skin of my teeth, every single semester enough for tuition. And I think of the kind of the goals around my own kids. It's like, yeah, I don't, I want them to, I want them to work. I want them to have the hard work ethic, but Mm -hmm. there's some things where maybe I'd like to lighten the load a little bit, you know? (laughs) That would be one of those areas. There is something to be said about the going through the hardships and making some of the mistakes. You mentioned earlier about investing in stocks. You know, making those mistakes, the painful lessons are so much more valuable than just being told them. Like you can tell someone, hey, like don't put all your money into one into one stock. But ultimately, like if if they do it and they lose money, then they'll actually know, okay, hey, maybe I should diversify things a little bit. Totally. I gotta tell you, the investing journey I went on was a ride. Like it was so much like what you're talking about. I could take some advice, but I was very much like a hands-on had to learn myself. And that was part of my learning journey. And I would say that what I see with my client base and with my students today is many of them are still that hands-on learning. And if you think about like money psychology, how we grew up and how we are as adults with money, what we know is that most of our money experiences were formed by those firsthand experiences. Sadly, for many people, like 70% of the population, those experiences happen to have a negative backstory to them, like too much debt or um, mm-hmm. making mistakes with their investments, making mistakes with real estate, which is why I think we have a bit of like a, a chronic anxiety problem. And like, and I, I do speak to that, like from a mental health perspective, they, they have data on us to say we do have like a chronic anxiety issue around money. 
as a society right now. And they're now labeling this as part of like a spectrum of wellness where we view, you know, how well are people in North America and Canada, US and and they're saying like, while well, finance, financial wellness is now we pulse check people, we see how are you feeling in that area. And a lot of people are, are saying like, I don't check out very well in that category. And then they peel back the layers of the onion Uh, which is what like my specialty is, Uh, you know, unpack this stuff and you find out that it to what you were just saying, those firsthand experiences, whether you were really, really young, some of those first memories, all the way to, you know, your your university days, we touched on that, we signed up for that credit card that somebody sold you on campus. And maybe it wasn't the right thing, like you didn't know how to use it and, and ended up like missing payments. And you know, and then and then on the flip side is some people have good experiences where they did get the credit card. It did allow them to build their score and look where they are today. Mm-hmm. So I think um, what I'm trying to get at is like all of those experiences form to make you who you are and almost like it's why you're scoring where you are on your financial wellness right now. What, what do you see as some of the fundamentals? And, and I think that, you know, our audience, you know, I don't think there's many teenagers listening to this. It's a lot of people either in university starting their careers, maybe midway through their career. What are some of the building blocks? Like when you do an assessment even, and you're you're really kind of analyzing more of like the knowledge that people have, are there, are there fundamentals that you kind of look at and say, okay, Hey, you understand how compounding interest works. You understand, you know, inflation and like, but what do you kind of look at and say, Oh, you're missing these two fundamentals. But what are what's kind of that that foundation that you look for? A couple of things. We always take a pulse check on how familiar someone is with their credit history and ultimately their credit score. Do they have a good history, a bad history? Because that kind of fuels their capacity to use leverage in wealth building activities or even to just pay off debt. Mm-hmm. So credit score is one of them. Concept of habits around savings and investing. This is super unique and. I specifically point to the word I use there, uh, habits. Saving and investing, the fundamentals of how those things work, right? You've got the, the accounts and you put money into them. Those are actually the easy part. The habits, so whether or not someone has the ability to form a healthy and consistent habit around uh, saving uh, for the short-term things they want, like emergency funds, vacations, and whether they have the ability to be consistent with investing, those are critical paths to long-term financial security and success. So we Mm -hmm. always look at habits, like how are your habits? When we look at spending habits, I would say we tend to try and assess like, are these healthy? Could they be adjusted? Does the person understand the concept of cash flow? You know this because of your background in business, but cash flow is what's used to uh, manage your business, grow your household, and just kind of like in the personal finance realm, live your life, pay your mortgage, uh, have the life that you desire. So where I I look at fundamentals and my team included is we kind of... uh, look to see does this person understand what are the how to increase or improve their cash flow which happens to allow them to pay off debt faster save more effectively invest better and of course uh, when they're doing all those things uh, including servicing debt their credit score starts to increase 
Mm-hmm. So I don't like to use the word budgeting a lot. Like we we have tools. We anybody if you want, you can go on my website. You can download our budget. There's a template there. But a lot of people do better with the concept of a, like mindful spending or mm-hmm. making a spending plan that includes things like saving, investing, spending on things that they want. And the key is cash flows. So the more that you keep, this is the the trick that wealthy people know, right? The, the more of your own money that you keep, the more wealth you build. So the game is, can I keep what I've worked so hard to earn? And that is basic budgeting. It, it actually, like, it reminds me so much of personal health. You know, I was having a conversation with a, with a teammate here at Neo, and I was like, man, you, you look like you're in incredible shape. Like, what have you changed? And he's like, you know what? I just started eating healthier and exercising. And it was... <laughs> It's so like, Thank it's such you. A, I know. And, and it's like, but we all know that, hey, if I stop eating junk food, I start eating more fruits and vegetables. If I go for a jog, even just one more time than I am right now, those things are going to help me. But like, maybe we're wired to, you know, always seek comfort and we're wired to not to put ourselves in positions where we have to struggle. And so we often know deep down what the right things are to do, save more than you spend. But what 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 is preventing us from doing the obvious thing? Like there's very few people who out there who disagree with me that if I said, hey, listen, if you spend more than you save, you eventually will have no money. Everyone knows that. And yet, we don't do it. And like the debt levels now in Canada, I think have never been higher. Correct. Um, despite the government giving out more money than we ever have over over COVID. What is preventing us from just making these obvious daily decisions? Like I know that personal finance is very individual, but do you see like, are there some things that aren't obvious that you think are preventing is, or is it just discipline? You know, I think... Um there's like an element of discipline. We definitely know based on research, like financially secure people are, they just are more consistent. Like they, they tend to treat their money like a health routine and they apply the same methods of like discipline and commitment and showing up to their finances that they would at the gym. But I am going to tell you, it is my opinion because I've been doing this for 17 years. The piece that does not get the airtime that it needs is the mindset around your finances. When I look at uh, maybe a new student or a new client that comes to us and I look at their their situation, my business will throw the same tools at the situation that any other financial planning business would do. Like we all have budget templates. We all have financial planners. We all have retirement trackers. Like you name the tool, we have an iteration of the exact same thing. The reason why some people succeed with money, though, is they shift the way that they're thinking about their finances. Mm -hmm. If they've had money trauma in the past, like even financial abuse, like maybe they saw it in their own home or they themselves maybe went through bankruptcy or something. And if they're stuck in the mindset of like, I'm never going to be able to do this or I hear this so often, I don't think I deserve this. Like Mm -hmm. I've been doing bad spending for so long like why would anything shift for me if the mindset shift does not happen it doesn't matter what tool you throw at this it will never work and i'm going to give you like a really good example so the way that i work uh, and the way that my business works is when someone comes to us and let's say they have some debt there's a really high chance that they've been told 
that they should go all in on paying off their debt, right? Like no matter what you do, put everything at it, like throw mm-hmm. every excess piece of money at it. Uh, what we know is that that doesn't work. In fact, those folks uh, typically, because they've done a consolidation and another consolidation, um, they're going to repeat the pattern because they've never shifted into the permanent solution, which is if you learn to save, you end up not ever needing debt again. And until someone tells them that going all in on debt is actually really, really bad for your finances, (laughs) they're going to keep doing that. So the way that we approach it is, of course, make your debt reduction a priority. But over here, you also need to start learning to love yourself enough to put money aside for your future. Mm -hmm. And that is an act of self-love, care, and self-esteem. Has nothing to do with the tools. (laughs) has everything to do with you saying, you know what, my future is important. I do need to have some savings because I now see that I don't want to get into another cycle or perpetual cycle of debt. Mm -hmm. So this is a mindset shift. So what we know about the mind is that when people begin the act of habit formation around saving, they begin to shift their motivation to more self-love, self-care, You often see, back to the workouts, people who start saving start to drop weight that they've been carrying around for too long. They start to eat better. Um, They start to feel better. They Mm -hmm. score more well on depression and anxiety inventories, Mm -hmm. and they start to feel better. The other piece is that the debt does go away, but it goes away for good. So the act of saving is like a very healing mechanism that changes a person's ability to forever be better with money. Easier said than done, though. Is there any approaches that you've used to really get people to make that shift? Because like often, like my, my mentor has always said, no change without shock. And he, <laughs> and, and, he, and yeah. then like, obviously, it's, he's being a little, he's exaggerating a little bit, but often people won't make the change until something happens. You have a heart attack, the, the cheating spouse gets caught, you know, the yeah. the alcoholic has a drunk driving accident and that's the shock that forces them to change their life in a dramatic way. So like, how do you get people to make this radical change without them having to hit rock bottom? It's so tough. But I think what you're getting at is why we encourage, we, we're like big fans of doing like financial challenges and we run them multiple times a year for a reason. It's the shock before the shocking happens. It's usually during those challenges where we say, okay, everybody, this past January, I think we had 900 people do our our detox for five days Mm -hmm. and they had to go five whole days without spending money on anything non-essential. I'm not kidding you, Jess. It was wild. It was like an actual detox and you had people having a shock that actually prevented them from hitting the moment Mm -hmm. where they did run out of credit from um, being scared, you know, like if I, and I keep going, (laughs) I've gone back to this twice, but like even in that, in that spending challenge, that no spending challenge, like we had someone leave their spouse because they had been basically like abusing the finances for so long. And I I think what I can say is like, it, it can be really helpful to not do this alone. So we do it in community. 
we encourage people to never go on their money journey alone. Like I went on it alone and I'm going to tell you, it was very lonely um, to be the only, like I was like the only young woman thinking about money for decades. It seemed, it seemed. Now I know I wasn't the only one, but it it felt like that. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask the question, like, are there easier ways? Do you need to shock your system? Like some people do respond really well to shocking the system. So I I assign you, I prescribe you, if that's you listening, <laughs> prescribe you a, to a spending detox or go and purge your house um, or go volunteer and, and see what yeah. it looks like on the other side. There are some people who do just respond better to programs and schedules. I, I call those mm-hmm. those folks like the more programmatic people. And like, you know, I can tell them, grab your phone and put a diary entry in each morning to to transfer money into your savings account. And the daily, sa- I call it the daily save. It's yeah. like very effective for some personalities who go, okay, I'm going to move $5 or $25 over today into my savings account. Um, and then I'd say like there are some people who who are fine. You just give them the big goal and say, you know what? Your, your goal is to save mm-hmm. X amount of money this month. And they do it. Like they figure yeah. it out and it's almost like a game for them. Yeah, I, I really like that, Leslie Ann, because it's, it's so similar to just building other habits, those habits and that mindset, you know, starting from the mindset. I, I love that because the way you think will drive a lot of your your actions and behaviors and ultimately the, your, your habits. And I kind of relate it back to like during COVID, I, I couldn't go to the gym at all. Plus, I had newborns at home, so I was not I didn't have a lot of time. And my only option to kind of keep my own sanity was to start running. And I hate running. I really don't like it at all. But I was like, I know that I feel way worse about life in general if I'm not exercising. And so then I was like trying to build the running habit and failing miserably at it. So I started basically saying, okay, well, the first habit I'm going to try to build is I'm just going to put my running shoes next to my bed. (laughs) And, you know, okay, that helped a little bit. But then I ultimately hit the snooze button, wouldn't get up at six, wouldn't go for the run. So then I said, okay, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to put my feet on the floor as soon as my alarm clock goes off. And then it was like, it wasn't like I was trying, I didn't need to get up and go for a run. All I had to do was wake up, put my feet on the floor. And then I was like, oh, my shoes are already there. Oh, my shorts, my shirt are there. And it's like, okay, now I actually don't have that many more excuses why I can't do it. I'm already kind of like, it's already laid out there for me. So the goal became so much easier for me to achieve because it wasn't like I was signing up to go for a 10 kilometer run. It was all I was doing was signing up to put my feet on the floor, put my shoes on. And then it was like, okay, now I'll just go and do it. And then I feel like people, it's so, it's so intimidating to say like, I need to save up for retirement. I need to save up this much money. But if you said to someone, don't spend any money for two days, do you think you can do that? And they're probably like, yeah, I think I can probably, probably, I can probably do that. Okay. So then let's, let's start there. And you kind of make it way more achievable bite-sized chunks and then it's like hey now that you've done this let's try like stretching it out a little bit and mm-hmm. in the very much the same way that you build your your own personal health I, like it, to me i just see so many similarities in just whatever you're trying to do just try to make the goal a little bit smaller maybe if you're struggling on like the big one and then you get those like that dopamine hit of like like hey i actually went like 3 days without spending on frivolous things it feels good <laughs> you know, it builds it builds pride. You should be teaching my classes. I was <laughs> just about to talk about dopamine. I was about to connect the dots. Let I will connect the dots about the detox, the spending detox. 
and the saving that's associated with it and the dopamine shift. So quickly, what we, why we do and encourage a spending detox is you usually have an aha moment during the few days that you do it of just how much was going toward the latte, the, mm. the, you know, the donut, whatever it was. And we ask our students to say, well, maybe you put the latte into your savings account. That's your daily save. So they start to understand that every day is a choice. And maybe you do lattes on Thursdays. Maybe that's the thing that you keep. But the other days, you're now moving that. It's not even $6. It's like $7 now for a latte. Yeah. You know, so you're moving that in. So what happens when the detox, the spending detox is going on and we get people to pair that detox with the act of saving mm -hmm. on a daily basis, there is um, that, that dopamine release that begins on the savings front. As you build momentum and you repeat the habit every day, the latte is going in there today or the equivalent of the latte is going into the savings today, the, the release becomes stronger and it becomes almost like a more addictive um, in a healthy way experience with, with the emotions of happiness and, and what uh, makes you feel satisfied. Mm -hmm. The other part I always share with my students is that on the overspending front, we know that same dopamine gets released, but it, so let's say somebody's like literally walking through the winners and, and you know, the checkout, it's like loaded. There's like a million things you can put yeah, in the impulse your cart aisle. as, yeah, the impulse aisle. And they do such a good job of it. Like I go through and I'm like, do I need another pack of gum? Does, does my one year old need this or that? And, and she's just starting to get such cute curly hair and I want to get all the hair things for her. And yeah. I don't. Because what we know is that as you're going through that that checkout and you're overspending, there is a very there's like a flash of dopamine that releases into the body when the overspending transaction happens. Yeah. And it wears off really fast because it's associated with a negative activity mm -hmm. that's unhealthy for you. You get a craving to go and do it again because that felt so good for that temporary piece. Uh, period of time 20 minutes yeah. two days and and you find yourself back at winners because the dopamine wore off mm -hmm. this is the overspending cycle from the brain chemical standpoint yeah so the more you you continue to overspend the more it actually perpetuates the cycle so what we you know do in this kind of situation is we try and get people to step out of the situation and apply a different method of dopamine release on the savings front yeah. which does not wear, wear off. It is a more sustained approach. And when you do the act of saving again, it releases again. And then you do it again because that felt really good. Mm -hmm. And then you do it again because it felt really good. And it actually has the ability very quickly within like three or four weeks to basically trump the addictive sensations you may have yeah. been feeling to do the overspending. Yeah, you re kind of rewire the brain a little bit. And Correct. I think it and I think people underestimate how quickly it can happen both ways. And you can be a good saver your whole life and then get into bad habits in under a year. I, I want to get more tactical, though, and, and talk about some different questions that I hear a lot. And, and so I, I grew up in a household where it was like, you should, everyone should own a house. Honestly, like when I would sit down with employees and talk about some of their goals, owning a house, because we have a lot of young, young staff, owning a house was probably the most common goal that people had. Even growing up in my household, my parents owned their house when they were like, 
22, maybe even younger. They were mortgage free by the time they were 28, I think. Like they were just were obsessed with with home ownership. And I feel like, and you live in Toronto now, so there's a lot of people. And and I'm I'm generally curious, like how how in hell does anyone own a house anymore? If you live in the GTA, if you live in the Greater Vancouver area, you know, even some of the Maritimes are they're just totally priced out. So the the question I really have is renting or buying is <laughs> yeah. do you have a I know there's like a five percent rule out there for that, but how do you go about coaching your clients on that decision of like, hey, is renting actually better for you? And a lot of people would say like, no, like my parents, like they thought I was just throwing money away by renting for so long. Then I was like, well, I'm kind of like the money I would be putting down to a house, I have doing something else. And they're like, ah, that doesn't make sense at all. So like, how do you think about that? I love that. And honestly, I like there is a such a good book that came out a couple of years ago that does a much better job than I'm about to do. And it's called The Wealthy Renter. The mm-hmm. author's name is a Canadian author. His name is uh, Alex Avery. And he does a very good job of like kind of debunking the home ownership lobby, which is so strong. What a group of loud voices, including all of our parents' generation, who, by the way, did not have to pay the same price tags that we have had to pay for homes. Like it's ridiculous. And so I'd say if anyone's like on the fence, uh, read that book. It will mm-hmm. it will really make you think a little different about could you, can you still build wealth while being a renter? A hundred percent you can. And in fact, you might be able to do it ease, more easily than someone who is a homeowner. So it used to be about three decades ago, they had data around homeownership, which indicated that homeowners in retirement ended up being six times wealthier than renters. And all of that has been upended. Now you've got renters and homeowners basically crossing the finish line in retirement at almost the same pace, Hmm. same size of nest eggs. And they're chalking it up to extreme high costs of living and the price tags, especially in GTA, GBA. And also historically in Canada, home prices have kind of steadily gone up. If that changes, then I think people are look at houses and say, ah, maybe, maybe home ownership isn't this way that you build wealth right. anymore. Like it's, I think it's a different era now. It is. And I love the open-mindedness of our generation coming to the table, asking this question, maybe for the first time ever mm-hmm. uh, in the past like 80, 90 years, we're saying this, this is, this is wild. So in some of those major centers to service a mortgage right now with 20% down, not just like 10%, not just 5%, 20%, down, the average household income requirements are close to two hundred sixty to $300,000 for a household to service a mortgage in one of those like G- GVA, GTA. That is wild. Imagine you're a young family, right? And like you, maybe you've got parental leave going on or uh, maybe someone's in between jobs. It's an impossible feat. Mm-hmm. And even in maybe less expensive city, cities, you are still finding that the household income requirements are, they're still like 175 to 250, right? We're still in that super high zone for homes. So here's what I like to suggest. Um, given the high costs of, of owning, given the extreme like change in interest rates, which has 
really put pressure on the, the serviceability of these mortgages, I think there is no harm in saving up even more. So if you were thinking of doing the 10%, honestly, do the 20 because it's going to put you in the habit of saving. It's going to put you in the habit of what your costs might actually look like. Mm-hmm. I, I find the, the other piece that's super shocking is I find that the leap from renting to owning is so significant. Like you go from paying $2,000 a month in rent to like literally five or $6,000 of household costs. That's not, that's, yeah. that is like the difference. I think, and I think you're hitting on this, but there's nothing shameful about not owning. I Correct. think that's, that's the first thing I think we need to get people to stop feeling this, this shame that, Guilt. hey, well, my parents, yeah, they, they owned when they were 25 and, you know, I'm 30 or 35 and I don't own a home yet. I don't think it's a different time and it's a different world that we live in. It is a different time. I think, I think that's number one. And then number two, it's really underestimated for a lot of renters, but, a lot of renters are focused on their career, like they're they're working a lot. And by renting, you don't need to spend the time on the main, maintenance of a home. And not only does the maintenance cost money, but it takes time. And then you're like, that's time that you're not spending on building up knowledge that you can then transfer into wealth accumulation. Totally. And, and I think that those things are, because people are just so driven by like, I need to check the box on owning a home. And then yeah. they start owning a home and they realize, A, this is really expensive. B, the, the feeling I get of, owning it, that pride of home ownership comes with a cost, a time cost. And unless you really enjoy home maintenance, and some people do, I think I I personally, I I actually like tinkering around the house and doing stuff with my hands. Not very good at it, but I still enjoy it. You you should value that. If you're going to spend all this money on 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 an asset, you should probably value those things. And I just feel like it's we're still stuck. So, so many of us stuck and just like, oh my goodness, I need to own a home. And without fully understanding, what are we really signing up for? I, I love that. I also think we're stuck in taking advice from people who shouldn't be given it. Like, isn't it so weird how when you start talking about money, like all sorts of people give you their opinion about your, what direction you should go in. Like I see this all the time with like couples getting married and they're like, we have to buy a house and we have to have a wedding and we have to get this car. And like you, you hit the nail on the head. There's like all these pieces don't have to happen. Step back and ask what's right for you. And there are benefits to renting, especially if you plan to, maybe you plan to go and travel for your career. Like go forth, my friend, <laughs> go and travel with the good knowledge. You don't have to replace an eaves trough. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on, because not everyone out there is a Leslie Ann who's really passionate about this stuff. A lot of people, they'll know a guy who knows a guy. They're a wealth manager or a financial mm-hmm. advisor. How do you think about wealth management, like wealth managers in general? And specifically, there's two philosophies, active management and more passive versus just self-directed. How do you think about that decision process of selecting one? Let me go to the data first, um, and then I'll explain who's who in the zoo <laughs> and like how to approach this. So unfortunately, the data shows that DIY investors of our generation don't actually do all that well. We mm-hmm. tend to underperform the market, and that is uh, a very expensive mistake. Now, of course, there's going to be exceptions and those folks typically have some kind of finance background and or trading background. So I'm going to start with that to just say generally 97% of the time, it is going to make sense for you to work with some kind of professional service for your money. 
Mm-hmm. And the professional services have become really like much more accessible, really cool, um, leveraging technology. So there's everything from robo-advisors, which you see lots of advertisements for on your social media feed now. And those leverage really inexpensive products like ETFs, exchange traded funds. So you see the, the kind of that whole industry being disrupted. They're disrupting the mutual fund industry, by the way. <laughs> Um, then you see the banks uh, offering mutual funds and they're getting awfully competitive now, lowering their fees, really cranking up performance. And it's in response to the disruption with robo-advisors taking all their business. And now you're actually starting to see a lot of that business trickle back into the banks because it's a bit more balanced. Then you have, um, you know, you've got your brokers. Uh, and I, I always think of like, I don't know if you remember that movie In Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, Will Smith was in that movie. He was a stockbroker, but he was at one point homeless, became the stockbroker. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's those folks who actually sell raw stocks and bonds and they craft custom portfolios. Usually in the wealth building journey, that will make sense when you have a fairly significant pool to to begin your your um, custom build of your portfolio. That pool tends to be over $250,000, and that's when you're bringing in an expert. And then we've got financial planners who do everything from your life insurance to your, your funds, and they build you a plan. Now, let me head on over to one other part of the zoo. I call it a zoo because it's very complicated. Like, there's a lot of people involved. But there is um, the money coaching and wealth coaching arena, which is um, like, that's what I work in. um, And that's what my business is. But it is a highly unregulated business. And this is where you have almost like strategists who work on your money strategy. They have the same tools, but they also are working with you on habit formation, your financial plan, how to make sure that you've got the habits to support that. But they shouldn't be selling you anything. They should be an independent offer of, of their voice to your financial plan. What I'm trying to get at is like, there's a really strong chance you're going to need help <laughs> in this money journey. So go and get it. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there that'll know someone who's, who did really, really well on, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's buying Bitcoin or if it's, they, they, yeah, they bought a stock and they made a ton of money and it's just like, to me, it seems a lot like gambling. Like it seems like yeah, everyone knows someone who hit it in the casino one night, but like generally the house wins over the long run. We're just about out of time here, Leslie Ann. So I first want to thank you again for coming on. This has been really, really awesome. And I actually had a ton of other areas I want to get into, but where can people learn more about you? Where can they follow you and who should be coming to you? Thank you. I appreciate that. So Mevest, M-E-V-E-S-T dot C-A is my website. And You'll see on that website, we've got a really active blog. So we've got weekly posts, highly relevant content. We've got tools that can be downloaded that are free. We also have paid services on there. If you need more support for coaching, for financial assessments, for courses and and just basic learning, we've got all of that there. On social media, at Leslie Scorgi is my handle. And you know, when it comes to who should reach out, if you're not sure, just reach out because I would much rather you reach out and myself or my team tell you this is the right place to be. Or why don't you try in going over here? 
we have like, you know, kind of clarity calls that we can offer for free that mm-hmm. I think are really helpful. You know, reach out if you've got questions and hopefully as you're listening, you do have more questions. That's the goal. And if it's piqued your interest, uh, there are only, only good things that can come out of, you know, learning more, learning, go to my blog, read a couple of things, like just learn more. That's the goal here and and try and have some fun in the process. Yeah. And, and just my own personal endorsement, it's the best money that you could probably spend is going and having an expert walk you through how you can live a better life, have less anxiety. It'll have huge positive impacts on your day-to-day, on your relationships. You know, we need to remove the stigma around money and have people feel comfortable to go and have those kind of privileged conversations with people who can really give them solid advice and kind of help filter out a lot of that noise out there, kind of what we started talking about of of all these people and all this content and just like have conversations that are specifically relevant to those individuals. So big fan of what you guys are doing and and really grateful for you coming on and and sharing some of your message, Leslie-Ann. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate being on. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about Neo Financial, visit us at neofinancial.com. Behind the Brand is a production of Neo Financial and Media Lab YYC, hosted by Jeff Adamson. Strategy, research, and production by Keegan Sharp, Alana Tefelchuk, and Kyle Marshall.